Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The scripture emphatically declares that God loves us, watches over us, and is deeply concerned about everything that happens to us. The experience we have, however, seems to put the lie to that declaration. And we begin to doubt if God really cares about us. Did you ever pray and not get an answer? Who hasn't? It makes you wonder if God really knows who you are. You wonder if he hears your prayers or if he remembers your address. In the face of unanswered prayer, you sometimes wonder, does God really care about me in this situation? Have you ever been treated unjustly and thought, why doesn't God do something? When he doesn't, you wonder if he sees what's going on in your life. In the face of unjust treatment, you begin to ask, does God really care? Have things gotten so bad that you felt like running away? I'm almost tempted to ask you to raise your hand, but I won't. You ever felt just like running, just get out of town, just run away? I, uh, I understand that. I think I have felt that way once or twice in my life. Uh, some of the mess that we want away from is our own fault, but some of it is not. We can get in such a mess that we feel alienated, alone, depressed. In the face of those unbearable situations, you can't help but ask, where is God? Does he really care about me? Have you ever, am I, am I beating the wind? Do you ever, you ever think some of these kind of thoughts? All right. If you think that of yourself, uh, then we need to talk about that. Some people get so low, they think they're the low man on the totem pole, socially, educationally, occupationally, and then the whole issue gets compounded. So you ask, why should God care about me? I'm nobody special. He's got all these things to look after. Why does he bother with me? So the question is, does God really care about you? If that question has ever crossed your mind, I invite you to give an ear to a story that illustrates the answer. It's in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. This is a relatively short passage. Let's read it. Now Sarai... Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, 
See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she sought that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dwelt harshly with her. She fled from her presence. Now, the angel of the Lord found her at a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Sir. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress, and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that you shall not be, uh, they shall not be counted for multitudes. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, his sand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also here seen him who sees me. Therefore, the well was called Berlaheroi. Observe it between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, is that an interesting story or what? There is nothing in the Bible that is more relevant to today than this passage of Scripture, which I'll explain in a minute. As a matter of fact, this passage of Scripture is as up-to-date as today's paper. It's as up-to-date as tomorrow's paper, and in my opinion, will be as up-to-date as all the papers in our lifetime. I'll explain that in a minute. What happens in this chapter is profoundly affecting the world right now. It is amazing what has happened because of this little story.
but I get ahead of myself. Let's go back and look at the passage. It starts with Sarai, who has an idea. The first six verses are simply explaining this idea that Sarah has. Verse 1 says, And Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now that is super important. If you've been with me as we've been going through Genesis, especially since chapter 12, you know that in chapter 12, God promised Abraham children, uh, a multitude of children. He'd be a great nation. That's chapter 12. In chapter 13, God says, you are going to have so many children, it's going to be like the granules of sand on the seashore. In chapter 15, he says, you're going to have children like the stars in the sky. They're going to be innumerable. You aren't going to be able to count them. You're going to have so many children. And descendants is the idea. Also in chapter 15, God made a covenant. He wrote it out, signed the contract, had it notarized. I'm telling you, I'm going to do this. You are going to have a son, and from that son, you're going to have more descendants you can ever imagine. Now, what's happening in chapter 16 is his wife hasn't gotten pregnant yet. At this point, He's 85 years old, she is 75 years old, and it's been 10 years since God first spoke to them. So, verse 1 is saying, she says to her husband, look, I don't have any children. So, here's her idea. Verse 16, verse, chapter 16, verse 1, she had an Egyptian handmaid whose name was Hagar. So, Harris said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain. Notice what she said. I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Now, this sounds a little strange to us. We wouldn't do that in our day. Uh, matter of fact, that would be immoral, unethical, and a whole bunch of other things. But um, in that day, the maid was the property of the wife. And according to the culture of the day, this was perfectly legitimate. That it, One of the main duties of the wife was to bear children. And if she didn't, if she couldn't, then she could use her maid to bear her children. As a matter of fact, the Code of Hammurabi says that this is what you ought to do. It's law uh, number 46. So, uh, I, I think it's one, uh, 46, it's somewhere up in there. Anyway, uh, this was a custom of the day. Now, that is the case, but... In light of what's going on in her life, there's a little difference. What's going on in her life? In their life, God has said, you are going to have a child. So for her to do this is what? A lack of faith. She is not trusting the Lord. She is living by sight, not by 
faith. One commentator imagines Sarah saying something like this. My dear, I have discovered that the Code of Hammurabi, the most civilized, progressive, decent legislative code so far, proposes that's proposed for civilized man, is honored here in Canaan. Well, according to the code, if I, uh, if I were to be married, uh, it would be in order for you to marry Hagar, my slave. Then, when a son is born to her, I can literally make her, my, illegally make her my son. In this way, we can get around the problem of my inability to have children. I can have them by proxy, so to speak. You can just imagine her giving that uh, little speech to Abram. So what did Abram think? Well, uh, verse 2 says, he heeded the voice of his wife. That's interesting. Uh, he could have reasoned like something like this. According to the custom of the day, there's nothing wrong with this idea. Number two, God said the air would come out of my body, so why not? Likewise, or I should say, like Eve, Sarah blamed someone else, and like Adam, Abram obeyed the voice of his wife. So this is clearly unbelief on both of their parts. The plot thickens. Verse 4. So he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Ooh. Uh, matter of fact, I skipped verse 3. We should go back and pick it up. Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt in the year in the land of Canaan for 10 years. All right, uh, two things here. One is that um, uh, she was giving Hagar to Abram as a wife. So this isn't like it sounds to us on the surface. It's polygamy. So he now has two wives, which was practiced in that day. The other thing that's interesting is that once Hagar conceived, she's the slave, she's the Egyptian, she's the maid, and she despises her mistress. She looks down her nose at her. I conceived, you didn't. Now, this is just the beginning of the problem. It gets a whole lot worse. But let me just pause here for a minute to say, the Bible does not condone polygamy. And one of the reasons is that that's not the will of God for marriage. Not to mention the fact it does not work. And this is a great illustration of the fact that polygamy does not work. When I was in college, I'm, there was a fellow there who was a student from Africa. And he had an uncle who practiced polygamy. As I recall, the limit was four wives. He must have been Muslim. And one of those four wives wanted a Mercedes. So he bought his wife a Mercedes. 
Then guess what happened? You got it. The other wives wanted a Mercedes. Now the problem with that was two of the three couldn't drive. But they had to have one because she got one. Now that's the kind of thing that's going on in this passage. No problem for us. We don't practice polygamy. However, just note, it does not work. All right, let's pick up the story again, this time in verse 5. This really gets interesting. Then Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. What does that mean? It's your fault. I did it, but it's your fault. Sound like Adam? Uh, Adam? It's all your fault. My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid unto your embrace, and when she saw that she was conceived, she beca I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and you. Now this is nothing more than anger, bitterness. She's upset. And it's also a little bit of blame shifting. But what intrigues me is her logic. Whose idea was this? Hers. And who gets the blame for it? He does. Sound like modern marriage? Don't answer that. Or you'll have to answer for it at home tonight. Her logic is like the young fella who, the note a young fella received from his girlfriend. Dear John, I hope you're not still angry. I want to explain that I was really joking when I told you I didn't mean what I said about reconsidering my decision not to change my mind. Please believe I really mean this. Love, Gene. Now, if you understand that, I want you to explain it to me afterwards. <laughs> But that's the logic that, some guy, that sometimes gets used in the midst of a heated discussion. But I want you to imagine something else. There are three main characters in this story, and the main character in this chapter ends up being Hagar. I want you to imagine how she felt. She probably felt like she'd been treated unjustly. You're the one that said, Go be Abram's wife. I just did what you told me to do. Yet, to some degree, it was her fault. At least despising her mistress was her fault. One commentator describes her as self-willed, independent, and refusing to accept correction. The whole situation for her was unbearable. I think it's very possible that she said, Does the Lord care. After all, she was just a slave. Did God even know she existed? Did he know about her situation? So I think that's the way she felt at this point. Does God care? Does he even know I exist? I'm a slave. Look at this mess I'm in, which it wasn't my idea to begin with. I also think she was guilty of pride. And I get that from the fact that she despised her mistress. And Sarai practiced blame shifting and harsh treatment of someone under her. 
And no doubt, Abram was passive. What a mess. Her idea was totally contrary to the will of God, and it created a mess, and you haven't heard the half of it yet. Thus, instead of securing fulfillment of her wishes, Sarah and Abram reap nothing but grief, vexation, and apparently lost the maid through her self-conceited scheme. Or, as someone has suggested, Hagar failed as a maid, Sarah failed as a mistress, and Abram failed as a man. There is failure written all over this passage of Scripture. Now, look at verse 6. So, Abram said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. In other words, Abram is saying, Hey, it's your maid. Go deal with it. Don't get me involved in this. I didn't have anything to do with this. This was your idea. So you go deal with it. Uh, now, at this point, her attitude and her actions were totally wrong. Uh, she dealt harshly, we see in verse 6, so harshly, and we aren't told what she did. But she's her mistress, and the slave is nothing more than a piece of property. She could have done anything she wanted to with her. It was so bad, she ran away. So I'm going to suggest that this part of the passage is Sarah's idea that caused a big, huge mess. I think when Hagar ran away, she was asking those questions I've posed throughout. Does God care? Does he know what's going on? I'm being treated unjustly and unfairly. And though she had pride, and Sarah's practicing blame shifting, and Abram is passing, uh, passive, they're all part of this mess. So, uh, it just created a mess. I don't know any other way to say it. She failed as a maid. Uh, hey, uh, Sarai failed as a mistress. Or, and, and Abram failed as a man. That just summarizes it. That just describes the situation. So at this point, she's left the scene. The second part of this passage describes the intervention of God. If this mess is going to get cleaned up, God has got to be involved. So look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? By the way, do you think he knew the answer to that? Of course. And where are you going? You think he knew the answer to that? Yep. So he isn't asking for information. He's asking to bring her to some self-awareness. And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Now, 
We need to pause here for just a second. Where she's headed, by the way, is back home. She's an Egyptian, so she's headed back to Egypt. That's where she's going home to mama. That's what she's doing. But I want to comment about the angel of the Lord. Uh, I am of the opinion, and so are virtually all commentators, the vast majority of commentators are, that the little phrase angel of the Lord is referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. She thought that in this passage. Uh, Drop down to verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You see that? The writer of this book thought that who spoke to her was the Lord. Now I'll get to that verse in a minute, but um, as a matter of fact, the Lord who spoke to her, she called his name, you are the God who sees. So clearly the angel of the Lord in this passage is the Lord. Now he hasn't been incarnate yet, so theologians call this a case of the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, The phrase, the agent of the Lord, appears 48 times in the New Testament. There are some of those where it is not the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a messenger from the Lord. Angel means messenger. But there are many passages where, in my opinion, it is clearly the angel of the Lord. As a matter of fact, I've been studying judges. I, I started to go back and look those passages up for tonight, and then I decided... I wouldn't take the time to go there. There are some unmistakable cases where the angel of the Lord is the Lord in the book of Judges and elsewhere, Exodus as well. So uh, that just adds to the fact that he knew where she'd come from. He's the Lord. He knew where she was going. He's the Lord. He knew. And he is telling her I know. That's very important. So then he gives her some instructions. He says in verse 9, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her authority. Wow. Uh, Under her hand. The idea is under her authority. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that you shall not be, uh, they shall not be counted uh, uh, for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Now, let me tell you about Ishmael. Up front, he's going to be a wild man. His, hand shall, his hand's going to be against everybody. And everybody's hand's going to be against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of his enemies. All right. Got to talk about some of these details. It's what brings this passage into the 21st century. In the first place, he said, go back to your mistress. I want you to return. And I want you to submit to her authority. So that's the will of God for you. That's what I want you to do. Go do it. Now, in the meantime, I'm going to tell you that you're pregnant. You're going to have a son. This is before ultrasound. She had no way of knowing that at this point. You're going to have a son. And I'm going to tell you to name him Ishmael. 
That Hebrew word means God hears. So she's the one that I described at the very beginning, wondering, does God care? Does God hear? Does God see the mess I'm in? And so the Lord appears to her and says, yep, I see it all. And furthermore, I want you to name your son just so you don't forget. I hear. Oh, and by the way, he's going to be wild. Uh, you look at some two-year-olds and you think, boy, that applies to more than him. Like a two-year-old boy, he's going to be wild. Only this idea is he's going to be like an untamed animal. He's going to wreak havoc everywhere he goes. Everybody's going to be against him, and he's going to be against them. Now, I keep promising you it's going to get worse. Who is Ishmael today? The Arabs. The Arabs. You know the conflict in the Middle East between the Jews and the Arabs? All of that happened approximately 4,000 years ago when Sarai came up with this bright idea and Abraham spent one night in a tent. So the next time you read the newspaper and the Jews and the Arabs are going at it, you remember Genesis 16, and it, all that happened because Abram spent one night in a tent with the wrong woman. That is the biggest mess of all. So, the text tells us, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Notice, the text says, it's the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. I have also seen him, have I also here seen him who sees me. So, she named the place, Berlehe Roy, which is uh, the indication that the Lord sees, and the Lord sees. Matter of fact, the, will, the well there is called the well of the living one who sees me. So, God heard, God saw, God cared. That's the point of this passage. I got it. I want you to name your son out of this. I heard you. I got it. So, he um, heard her plea. He saw her plight. And he cared about her person. The Lord cares. He sees and cares about everything that's going on in our life. God did care about Hagar. He cared about Abram. He cared about Sarah. And perhaps she was relieved to get rid of her maid. But the Lord was deeply concerned about her. And he wanted her back to where she was supposed to be. God cared about her, and she was a mere runaway slave. Guilty of pride. Now think about that. 
Who cares about a slave, the lowest of the people in society? And on top of that, a very disobedient slave that ran away. Not a guiltless slave, but a guilty slave. But the Lord cared about her. One commentator said, It is remarkable, to say the least, that the first occurrence of Jehovah Angel, probably none other than the Lord Jesus himself and one of his pre-incarnate angelic appearances, should not be to Abram, but to Hagar. Not to the heir of all the promises, but to the Egyptian fugitive. Not to a man, but to a woman. Not to a saint, but to a sinner. Not to a person of high rank, but to a slave. Not one seeking God, but one fleeing toward Egypt. The Lord is the friend of the friendless. Wow. If the Lord cares about a runaway slave, you think he might care about you? Whom he's redeemed by the blood of his son. So the passage tells us, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So she obeyed the Lord. She returned to Hebron, which is where they were. And when she bore a son, Abram obeyed the Lord's command and named the son Ishmael, God hears. So they both obeyed the Lord. Now, I want to wrap all this up, and I want to make a couple of observations. The sum of this passage is this. When Sarah didn't wait patiently on the Lord, a conflict resulted. But when Hagar called on the Lord, he graciously heard and blessed her with a son who was to have innumerable descendants. What an interesting story. Now, I want to talk about something that is one of the strangest things in all of the Bible. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul allegorizes this passage of Scripture. Now, that's very, very strange. Now, let me explain what that means, because this is super important. One method of interpretation often referred to as the literal method of interpretation, is you take the Bible at face value. If it says Sarai, it means Sarai. If it says Hagar, it means Hagar. Those people actually live. And they did what this chapter says. That's the literal interpretation of Scripture. And that's the way it should be interpreted. Allegory says, this may not be historical. But the people in this story represent something else other than historical people. Now, there are people that allegorize the Scripture, which is to destroy the Scripture. So the last thing you would want to do is come to the Scripture and make it to mean something it doesn't. Make it mean something that's not historical. So we're all shocked 
when in Galatians 4, that's what Paul does with this passage. He says, Hagar represents the Mosaic covenant, and Ishmael is its fruit, slavery. Sarai represents the Abrahamic covenant, and Isaac, which we'll be introduced to later, is the fruit of that covenant, which is free sons. So the children of the flesh persecuted the children of the promise. That's uh, Paul's concept in Romans, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 4. Now how do you answer that? Did Paul think the Old Testament was an allegory? Now you've probably even never heard of a problem, but you might. So I thought I'd mention it. And the answer is no. And that's easy to demonstrate that every other time Paul refers to the Old Testament, he takes it literally. He does not allegorize it at all anywhere else except in Galatians 4. The other thing I would say is this. Paul does not say it's an allegory. The Greek phrase should be translated that passage being allegorized. So he didn't say it is an allegory. He says to get this point across to you knuckleheads uh, that believe you've got to be under the law, I'm going to allegorize an Old Testament passage just for you. Perhaps some of them did that, and he's using their method to refute them. But he is not saying it's an allegory. He is saying it being allegorized. So, just in case somebody ever brings that up, you'll remember that, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Now, let me go back to Genesis chapter 16. The story begins with Sarai being barren. She took matters into her own hands, which didn't solve a thing. It only caused complications and conflict. And the story ends with Sarai still barren. So her great idea didn't solve the problem. And the relationship between Sarai and Herak and uh, and Hagar uh, is not resolved at the end of this chapter. What a mess. So the spiritual principle here is this. Resorting to fleshly means rather than waiting on God to provide what he has promised always creates problems. The word I've chosen to use tonight is a mess. And it can have ramifications way beyond anything you can imagine, such as the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs. So the story shows that human failure creates a mess. But ah, the story also illustrates that it does not frustrate God's plan ultimately. So God said, I'm going to use this son for my purposes. So as a result of Sarah's idea, Ishmael was born, and from him come the Arabs, just as God predicted. And the Arabs have been in conflict with the Jews ever since. That was true throughout the Old Testament period. The Arabs have constantly conquered the land during the Middle Ages, and the Israeli-Arab hostilities over the land have heated up 
in the last hundred years. What a mess. All because one woman didn't trust the Lord and wait on him to fulfill the promise like he said he would do. So one of the great lessons here is don't take the situation into your own hands and think you're going to solve it. Wait on the Lord and let him solve the problem. In contrast to Sarai, Hagar called on the Lord, which is what Sarai should have done. When Isaac's wife was barren, he prayed. That's what she should have done. And later, when Hannah was buried, uh, barren, she prayed. So that's what Sarai should have done. When we call on the Lord, he hears our plea, sees our plight, and cares about our person. Would you write that down? If not literally on a piece of paper, tattoo it in your brain. God cares about you. He hears your prayers, and he sees the situation you're in, even when it's not your fault, and when it's partly your fault. Isn't that encouraging? The Lord knows. The Lord hears. The Lord sees. And he intervenes with his power through his word. He communicates to us through his word. He really does care about me. So what I want you to do is walk out of here with that idea tattooed in your brain. The Lord cares. The Lord sees. The Lord knows the mess you're in. He knows more about your situation than you do. Right? And he cares about it more than you do. But he's going to work out his purposes even in the midst of the mess we make. So, the Lord sees. The Lord hears. That is the message of this passage. Leonardo da Vinci painted a portrait named the Mona Lisa. It hangs in the Louvre in Paris. It is a masterpiece that people from all over the world come to see. The portrait is of a wife of a Florence merchant. The extraordinary thing about that picture is that wherever you stand in the room, you can never escape her mysterious smile. She is always looking at you intently. The guide will say she sees all and knows all. That's the Lord. He loves us so much. He can't keep his eyes off of us. So keep your eyes on the Lord because he's never going to take his eyes off of you. Father, thank you for the assurance that we sometimes feel alone, alienated, even deserted. We don't see an immediate answer to prayer. That you're there, you hear, you see, you care. 
Lord, help us to remember that. That we not go do stupid and foolish things, but that we just trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.